This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are pleased to welcome you to week three of the series, Awaken, Live Like It Matters, uh, which is a series that's being preached in unison at the churches that are involved in Church United all over South Florida, especially those of us in Broward County, um, each church preaching on the same passage, on the same big idea uh, each week. Uh, Each pastor doing their own sermon, but it's a unity of theme and a unity of thinking. Um, The idea just to be to have the entire church in this area uh, thinking about the same thing at the same time. And this week we come to the story in Acts chapter four of the aftermath of the healing of the lame beggar from Acts chapter three. Uh, It's you know it's like if you want to if you want to get the whole story, you've got to read all the way through chapter three, Uh, but. We're, it's, we're, the topic is essentially is boldness. The uh, apostles are arrested and threatened, and it's the idea of boldness. Um, so, Sam, let's set the context for them here just a little bit. Uh, there was a, a, a beggar, right, who had been mm-hmm. there for some time that uh, he asked Peter and John, or, or at least Peter, uh, for, for money, and then what happened after that? Yeah, so there's there's a guy who would be carried up. He's he's lame from right. birth, so he's nobody's ever seen him be able to walk. So, and he was known for this because the scriptures make it a point to tell us that they take him to the gate of the temple that's called the Beautiful Gate. And the reason why it wants us to know that is the Beautiful Gate is right near the most crowded area of the temple. It's where the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Israelite women come together. So all the Israelites that go closer into the temple travel through this spot, and where it's the farthest, closest to the temple that the Gentiles can come. So beyond the beautiful gate is only where the Israelites can go go into, and so you get all the people congregating right here. So tons of people would have seen this guy. They would have seen him every day for years and years and years being brought here to beg. So they would have known that he was was lame. Yeah, they and, tell us later that he was like 40, right? So I mean, this, yeah. this guy was in his middle middle age basically. Yeah, so it was there was no it, what this wasn't a 40-year scheme, right. <laughs> you know, Correct. that the apostles Correct. had put together. Um and by the way, that guy would have been older than Jesus. So, so anyway, what happens is he's there, he's there begging, and Peter comes along, and he's you know begging for money. And Peter says, "It's that famous line: I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I, I give to you." And he says, "In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk." And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up. He stood and began to walk around and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And, of course, everybody is sitting <laughs> with their <laughs> jaws on the floor because of this healing. And so the first thing you would do whenever something like this happened, you wanted to know by what authority, by what prophet, by what name did you do these things. And so everybody is drawn to this. 
and the crowd when they press in around them they're they're asking them you know that like you say by what authority did you do this so so peter kind of i mean he launches into a sermon essentially mm-hmm. it's what it is and uh and he tells them i mean he he gets that right into them. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you <laughs> killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And that, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. That had to be... <laughs> I mean, that just went over like a lead balloon. I mean, that was just yeah. like slap in the face time. Yeah, you, I mean, you talk about how this season, I mean, we're not yet in our passage, but you want to talk about boldness. Uh, you got to remember that we're still just a few months away from the time when Peter and the apostles were running away and cowering and couldn't make sense of anything. And now, on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of the ascension of Jesus, they've experienced Pentecost. Peter, in that moment, in Acts chapter 2, was preaching to thousands in public view, putting himself out there, knowing that they may come to arrest him. 3,000 people came to faith that day. And so then you get to the next chapter, Acts chapter 3, and Peter goes to the most crowded point of the temple to perform this very public miracle. And then at this point where Israelites and Gentiles alike can all hear, you know, hear, he just starts launching in and he's preaching at the Jews saying, you, you religious leaders, you killed the author of life, you killed God, and now God has raised him from the dead. And that is, that was something that provoked quite a response. The the teaching of the resurrection was very, very controversial in first century. And so that that brings us then into chapter 4, which begins in chapter 4, verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, we liked this phrase, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, the Sadducees, they did not, these religious teachers did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. That's why they're sad, you see. Uh, hey, <laughs> if you knew that line, you knew it was coming. Just, you knew it was coming. Everybody out there knew that was coming. If you heard that in middle school, you were, you were <laughs> waiting for it. They're sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, other than that, were the, the, you know, we, had, we know the Pharisees. Everybody knows mm-hmm. Pharisees, lovers of the law, very particular. You tithe on your mint and dill, you know, mm-hmm. those kind of guys. Were the Sadducees like the Pharisees, but just didn't believe in the resurrection, but otherwise they were just as weird as the Pharisees? Yeah, it's it's almost I mean, you can kind of relate it to people that are that are extreme zealots in the political spectrum. Both mm-hmm. of them are extremely legalistic in what they believe. And anybody who doesn't hold to their orthodoxy is evil and damned and everything else. That both the Sadducees and the Pharisees hold that streak of self righteousness. 
But the Sadducees have they, – they only believed in the first five books, so that was one of the things that made them you know, kind of distinctive. They believed in the Torah, the writings of Moses, but they didn't hold the prophets or the Psalms um, at the same revered level as being on par with the Torah. They didn't believe in um, necessarily the angels were still active on earth. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They basically did not believe that God was supernaturally involved with his creation as much anymore, where the Pharisees were still very much into the law of Moses, but then they added to it. So the Pharisees loved to add. So <laughs> you know they would bring in they would bring in the prophets and they bring in the psalms and they'd bring in all the history books beyond the first five books of the Bible and then beyond that they would bring in you know the the traditions of the scribes and and the rabbis and you know the Mishnah and everything else and they would build even beyond the scripture all these extra rules that everybody had to follow and so where the Sadducees strip everything down and tended to, to lean towards skepticism and the more liberal side of theology, the Pharisees were very strict not only about the Torah, but about all of the scriptures that we would call the Old Testament. And what got them in trouble a lot with Jesus is they added onto it. And so all the traditions and everything else that the the, the scribes and the rabbis would add to it, like you know, the, the, for example, the Sabbath would say, you know, you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath day. But the Pharisees and the scribes come along and they say, well, you're not allowed to tie knots and you're not allowed to put out fires and you're not allowed to, you know, scrub things. I mean, like an insane, massive list of things. You're not allowed to spit on the ground because it might cause crops to grow. Like ridiculous things that you yeah. kind of go, really? That was the Pharisees. So the Sadducees boiled everything down to just the Torah. The Pharisees had this massive, you know, list of things that everybody had to follow. The Pharisees giving us that uh, completely bizarre freak of nature thing, the phylactery, um, yeah. which there's in the Old Testament, folks. There's there's verses that would, where God said, "Look, I, He wanted you to bind His yeah, word six. on your in, on your forehead." And the idea being that you would read it and become familiar enough with it that you've committed it to memory. It's in your thoughts. You you put it into your mind. Okay, <laughs> but the Pharisees are like, He said, "Bind His word on your forehead." So they made these little boxes that they would put pieces of, the, of scripture in and they would tie them to their stinking foreheads they walked around with things <laughs> tied on their foreheads hey they wanted to honor it. you know what and that's where also that same passage is where the mezuzah comes from where it's the little thing that goes next to the on the doorpost mm -hmm. if you go into yeah. a jewish person's house and there's scriptures in there too because it says to put the scriptures there you're to meditate it on it and the idea behind that passage which is deuteronomy 6 it's called the shema it's really pretty brilliant is it's talking about when you rise up, when you go to bed. It should be on your forehead and on your hands. So it's saying when you think, when you meditate, yeah. or when you're working. Like the, the Word of God should always be in front of you is the idea of the whole Shema. But they take it quite literally, and so they would bind things on their hands, and they would bind things on their foreheads, and they would bind things on their doorposts. Um, that was the Pharisees. Apparently, the Pharisees believed that God was not capable of metaphorical speech. <laughs> so. Hey, we we – we know people like that. Oh, yeah. No, we know people like that. So the Sadducees, they, they come and snatch up Peter and John because they're greatly annoyed at this teaching of the resurrection. That's the interesting thing. And, and before we started recording, you mentioned this. It's like these guys aren't upset at, 
at all necessarily that this guy was healed. They're upset at the fact that Peter and John are talking about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. It's a theological thing that has them infuriated at this point. They want they want to shut these guys up because these guys are talking about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And and one of the reasons for that. And by the way, the teaching of the resurrection of the dead infuriated Rome. They called it a mischievous superstition. But the idea was, if you believe that you're living for eternity, you are much more difficult to control. Yes. Um, if you don't believe that this kingdom is the only one that matters, you're much more difficult to rule. And so the Romans especially hated it because they wanted earthly dominance. But even even the Sadducees, you notice when it says that they, they were annoyed because the that Peter was preaching the resurrection from the dead, the dead is plural. So it's not saying – they're not upset – that, hey, you're claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. It's that they're teaching that by faith in Christ, there is a resurrection from the dead for right. everyone. Um, and that was where the feud came in because it was like, you know, on the last day, okay, we believe this, that, or the other. The, the Sadducees wanted no part of that. Yeah. Like this life was all you get. You know, I, and we've talked about that. I don't even, I don't know how many times over the 130 episodes plus that we've done on the podcast we've talked about this many times is that if we believe I mean really believe that when we die we will live again like we our our life doesn't end when we die that just means we're we're shedding this mortal body this mm-hmm. flesh that quite frankly as I'm getting older isn't doing so well. So (laughs) I'm not going to be sad to see it go. I won't be sad, you see. I'll be happy to see it go. (laughs) Um, But if if we believe that, if that's Mm -hmm. true, what do we have to be afraid of? Mm -hmm. Nothing. Honestly, nothing. I mean, it doesn't get me wrong. I'm still afraid of being put into a wood chipper or thrown out of an airplane at 40,000 feet. I got a whole list of things I don't want to happen to me because I don't like pain and I, and I don't, you know, that. but the fact of the matter is that if the worst thing that you can do to me is basically to send me to my room, which is if you kill me, you're sending me home. You're sending me to my, my room in heaven. You're like, whoop, that's it. You know, we've killed him. I'm like, okay, thank you. Um, yeah, like giving you a promotion. Yeah. So if if we really believe that, what yeah. hold can the world possibly have on us? Yeah, I've I've used this recently, and I don't remember if it was on the podcast. But one of my favorite ways of looking at that is if you know if I told you to run full speed at a brick wall, it changes the way you run. Like you're first off, you probably wouldn't do it, and you'd look yeah. at me and say, "You're an idiot." No way am I doing that. But let's say that you had to. If I told you run at a brick wall, the whole way you're running, you're wincing, you're calculating, you're living in fear, you're like running, but you're not really giving it all you got. But if I told you that and I assured you that that brick wall was simply, you know, onion paper that's mm-hmm. painted to look like bricks and that when you hit that, it's not going to cause pain, you're going to go right through it. Trust me. I want you to run. Now you can if you believe that, you run differently. You don't you don't get close to the wall and start wincing and and clinging tightly and you're running with no you can run with freedom and reckless abandon because the brick wall doesn't determine your expiration date right it's when you're on the other side of that it enables you to run on this side of the wall as though the wall is not the end and it right. changes the way you live if right. you believe in the resurrection if you believe in eternal life 
than all your petty little possessions here that get swallowed up, you know, by by the grave, yeah. wealth and stuff like that. Man, you don't live with a death grip on them because they don't define you. You know, and uh, we've also talked about how the church, particularly the church in America, has become so focused on the crucifixion, which is a good thing to be grateful for and focused on. I mean, that's when Jesus took the penalty took God's wrath upon himself and paid the penalty for all of our sins. It is through his death that we have forgiveness, but it's through his resurrection that we're guaranteed eternal life. So and and we've become in in the modern church really very cross-centric and maybe not enough empty tomb focused. But these guys here in the 1st century, there's no question what was important to them. Yeah, and and I'd say, you know, when you look at the cross, the greatest thing that we pull from the cross, I mean, obviously the atonement and all of the, the practical implications of what it means that he went to the cross, but that's where we see the greatest demonstration of God's love. But in the resurrection, that's where the the power of victory comes because it's, not, you know, if he, if he went to the cross and stayed dead, that's still an incredible act of love. But it's in the resurrection when he defeats death and comes comes back from the grave holding the keys and the power over death. And he says, by faith in me, you too now have power over death. It has no claim on you. It had, the grave has no hold on you. Now all of a sudden it exhilarates you to walk and to run with the security of hope. And, you know, when, when Jesus lays out faith, hope, and love, like you see all those reflected in the cross and in the resurrection, you know. By faith in what he's doing, you sense the incredible love of God expressed on the cross, but now you have this unshakable hope that all the worst sufferings of this world, all the miseries of this world, all of it is going to be overthrown by the power of the resurrection that's not just infused in the body of Jesus or in your body, but the power of the resurrection will redeem everything that's broken and dying in this world, mm. mm-hmm. that 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 gives us confidence. Yeah. The resurrection is the power behind our faith. I just, I mean, just look at how seeing Jesus risen from the dead transformed the lives of these apostles. These guys who were huddled in fear, who were wondering when they were going to get killed, when when, you know, when who's coming for them? They they got Jesus. Are there? Are, we're next, obviously. When they saw Jesus raised from the dead, they became completely and utterly fearless. And, you know, everybody that wants to tell me that the first cent- that the apostles and those guys, you know, they just sort of invented this whole resurrection thing because they wanted some kind of power grab. Like, folks, <laughs> if you think that, it ended badly for every one of them. Every one of them was killed in some really, well, except for John, was killed in some really unfortunate way, and yet not a single one of them recanted or, I mean, it's like they were given a complete fearlessness by what they had Mm -hmm. seen. I mean, that's a tremendous evidence of the truth of the resurrection, that these guys were completely unafraid after they had seen the raised, the resurrected Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you look at their preaching, and it is obsessed with the resurrection. You read through the book of Acts, pay attention to how often they mention the cross or how often they mention ethics or how often they mention the resurrection, and it's not even close. They are absolutely obsessed with the resurrection. 
So the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, very irritated. They grab him up. They throw him in jail overnight. And the next day they drag him in front of the the court, the Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, who are all of the high priestly family. They bring them all in, put them on display, and they ask them the same question. Verse 7, they say, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter says in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. At that point, I'm pretty much sure that the the chief priests, elders, the, the religious leaders, they were foaming at the mouth at this point. <laughs> I mean, you remember how they responded when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And right. basically when he said, you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory, what is he saying? They know they're going to put him to death. And what is he saying? It's not going to hold me. I'm going to come back on clouds of glory. You are going to see me coming in all my power. And they went, oh, yeah. And they demanded that he be put to death. And he was put to death and all hell broke loose. Yeah. And now they're going, uh-oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and now, all of a sudden, Peter's just done this amazing, or the Spirit of the Lord through Peter has just done this amazing miracle in front of countless numbers of witnesses. And so the religious leaders do what they did to Jesus. They pull these, you know, they pull them in in secret, and they begin to interrogate him in private. And Peter's like, if you, if you want to know, <laughs> you, you want to know what actually caused this miracle, I'll tell you. But let's tell all of Israel. Let's put this – I mean, it's really like, let's put this on court TV. Let, let's broadcast it so everyone can hear. And it's bold. Like, what he's saying is, I want the whole world to see what's going on here. I want everyone, not just you – you know, because if you remember, Caiaphas and Annas were both involved in you know the the crucifixion of Jesus, yeah. the kangaroo court that yep. put him to death, and so now here's Peter standing in front of him, and when Jesus went, he willingly gave his life, right? And he was, we're told that he went like a lamb before its shearers, and he was silent until they put him under oath before God. Then he spoke. Peter's not. Peter's not doing that. <laughs> Peter, Peter's not going quietly. He's like, you want to have a trial? Let's have a trial. Yeah. Let's put it on the big screens. I want everyone to see this. And it's like, they're like, what do we do with this guy? They're, they don't know what to do with this guy. Well, and that's what it tells us in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized <laughs> that they had been with Jesus but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's like, you know, it's like, what are you going to do with that? You know, the guy that's been like laying in front of the temple for years, we've all tossed him some coins, you know, he's standing next to Peter and John. It's pretty hard to argue with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're blown away because these are fishermen, you know, they're – these are common men. They're not, they're not seminary trained. There's no great rabbi. Like, you know, the Apostle Paul will be trained up by Gamaliel, who's super, super, you know, has high reputation, and Paul would have been thought as a man of learning. 
none of these guys would have been thought to be somebody who should speak publicly. They haven't been trained, and yet they're all astonished. You know, they're they're teaching, and they can tell these guys have been with Jesus because they remember what it was like when he taught. You know, he confounded the audiences. He 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 was amazing, and they're getting this impression. And it's I love this because it's you know, <laughs> I try to imagine a Presbytery meeting <laughs> where who, <laughs> other people may not know what that's like, but where you have all these learned men with all their degrees and everything else, and here comes a commoner, and they're like, uh, how who wants who wants to answer this one? But that's that's God uses such He uses all people. I mean, and that's not to say that He doesn't use education. I'm a big believer in education, but some of the greatest um, instruments that God has used in His church have been exactly like these men. Yeah. You know, I love that old line: God God doesn't call the equipped necessarily, but He equips the called. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, I was I was reading a commentary on this passage, and I didn't know this, uh, but some of the men who did not have formal education that you know maybe our audience has heard of a few of these Charles Spurgeon I didn't know that he was a you know not seminary trained or whatever D L Moody William Carey who was the famous missionary Martin Lloyd Jones Hudson Taylor who was one of the most important missionaries in the history of the world who made huge impacts for the kingdom of God. They weren't seminary trained. They didn't have all the accolades or degrees or credentials, and yet God used them mightily. And if you're asking me for somebody in the last 150 years who's the most brilliant preacher, man, I'm I'm putting my money on Spurgeon. Yeah, I didn't realize that he had no seminary training going into ministry. That's that's amazing to me. I knew it about D.L. Moody, but I didn't know it about the other guys. But yeah, D.L. I'd heard the, the story the, uh, the story of of D.L. Moody's life um, that he was a salesman basically. Hmm. Um, so, um, so they getting back to our story here. Uh, Peter and John they they kick him out of the room, uh, and then they start talking amongst themselves. And here's what they said, verse sixteen: What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thank you very much. Done in public, <laughs> and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they drag them back in and they tell them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then they get this answer. This, 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 by the way, this isn't just the opinion of some guys. You know, these are members of the Sanhedrin, which would have been the governing authorities over the Jews of the time. Yes. And so this sets up an interesting dynamic. It's one of those questions where when – you know, God has – it says God anoints the people that he puts in power. And so each of these guys is in an office that carries authority over them. It's – you know, in a sense, it's the government of Israel at this time. And they're about to say, don't do this. Well, God tells us that we should obey our governments and it sets up this conundrum that you're yeah. going to see Peter have to walk through. Yeah, and to just – to address that briefly, which is I have always believed that we're to obey the government unless the government is commanding us to do something that would contravene the, the mm-hmm. word of God, the laws of God. Like mm-hmm. if God commands me to do X and the government commands me to do Y, then I'm supposed to do X. Now, if the government commands me to do something that you know offends my sensibilities or doesn't feel you know if it's not if i can't point to the part of scripture and go here's where god tells me to do the opposite then i'm supposed to go along you know god said the government's been put over me for a reason um mm-hmm. 
that's hard to swallow sometimes because our government does dumb stuff. Um, no. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I realize that's a shocker. Uh, but I do believe that we have expanded that in recent times to say we should obey God and not men. And I'm like, that's fine. Where did God talk to you about speed limits? Well, God is my co-pilot. And he likes to go fast. I'm like, OK, <laughs> that's fine. You know, um, I just they, it gets applied to things that I, you know, but in this case, they were told not to speak anymore. Don't don't teach or speak in the name of Jesus. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, that's going to be a problem. And where it gets really tricky when you're talking about this for Americans, in our established form of government, the, the, the king with the, the highest law of our land is the Constitution. Right. And so then that adds another wrinkle in it to where if you have somebody who's in rebellion of the Constitution, who's requiring you to do something that the Constitution does not permit him to have the authority to do – then what do you do? And that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but it gets it gets tricky. It yeah. really does. So here's the answer from Peter and John to this one. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Look, they're like, we're going to keep telling people what our own experience is. And in the personal worship notes this week, I kind of made that point. I'm like, the people that are in authority over us, uh, whether that's a boss at work or a teacher at school or whomever, like just there's, there's people who are in authority over us most of the time. You know, mm-hmm. most of us have that situation. And that person, if we're talking about a workplace or a school environment or wherever, they certainly have a responsibility to maintain a certain sense of order and decorum to accomplish a goal. Like we're here to learn or we're here to work, that kind of thing. So if, if you're like prancing through the office, flinging gospel tracks at people and being generally disruptive, that's probably not wise. <laughs> okay. That's not a good idea to, to do something like that. But on the other hand, if what I'm doing is is telling others, not in a disruptive way, not in a, hey, everybody, stop what you're doing and look at me, but I'm talking to people that are there, and what I'm doing is sharing what God has done for me. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that nobody really should be able to intimidate you into not doing. You should mm-hmm. be free to tell of what God has done for you and relate that to other people so that just – that's a personal experience. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, and, and they're willing, by the way, you, you see this in the passage where they go to jail. It's civil disobedience. What they don't do, when, when the Sanhedrin comes along and says, you may not, what they don't do is take out swords and say, oh, yeah, yeah. they accept the consequences. That's and true. That's, that's really hard. You know, that was, that was the, the, the thing with Peter when he's in the garden and they come to arrest him and Peter says, I'll never let that happen. Well, he meant it. He took out a sword. He would cut off Malchus's ear. He was ready to fight. And what does Jesus say? Put your sword back in its sheath. You know, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And then he calls on Peter to to suffer for him. Yeah. And that's hard for me because yeah. I'm somebody when I see injustice, I want to fight fire with fire. Right. Um. And and knowing when you're biblically allowed to do that, when you're you know just war theory or whatever it might be. And when you're supposed to be willing to suffer, like you see in in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts, or in Paul's life, um, that's hard. Yeah, but that's that's the example we have. It is, 
you know, they were told take a stand, and then that means we may suffer the consequences for mm-hmm. that. So, yeah. So it says that they further threatened them and then they let them go because they couldn't punish them. All the people had seen what would happen. They're praising God. Um, they and this is where it tells us verse twenty two for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. And then that finally brings us to verse twenty three, which is the passage that we have actually been considering for the message this week, which is verses twenty three to thirty two. But we wanted to give you that context. I think it's really important that you understand what has happened here. What did they do? What did what what was told to them? How were they threatened? And what did they say? Because now you begin to understand. When it comes to verse 23 and says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Hmm. why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So the first thing that they did was they came back and they declared the greatness of God. And mm-hmm. then they went right to his word. I mean, they basically they're having a prayer meeting here, you know. Mm-hmm. They're, they're well, this is the Psalms. So they're singing. When it says they lift their voices together, it's like, okay, how do we deal with this? Yeah. So you open with this little, you know, prayer, God, you who made heaven and earth and sea, you're sovereign over all of this. Nothing is a surprise to you. You see that these people are opposing us. They're telling us that if we pray, you know, that they're going to come after us. And so we recognize that you're the one who is sovereign. And so we're going to call you out now in the psalm that you gave us, which is Psalm 2. And you said by the Holy Spirit, and then they sing this together, um, which is straight up right out of Psalm 2. Mm-hmm. The first thing that we can take from this is that somebody who is who is bold, they're filled with the Spirit and they've become bold for the Lord, that what does that person do in the face of threats? Well, what that person does in the face of threats is to praise God and to and to go back to his word. It's like mm-hmm. to, to to rest on and to this is when the word is supposed to be bound again, you know, in your forehead. It's like you're supposed to you're you're supposed to know <laughs> the word well enough to be able to fall back on it in the, in these kinds of times. But they sure didn't let the threats intimidate them. I mean, they're, they weren't intimidated at all by being threatened by the chief priests and um, by the Sadducees. Mm-hmm. Now, after that, verse 27, they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they, they're acknowledging here that Everything that had happened to Jesus and to them, all of these, you know, the, the suffering, the opposition, these threats, all of these things that they've been going through, they're saying that all of these things are according to God's plan. Mm-hmm. That also is, a, you know, when, when we find ourselves in a position of hardship, when, when we're facing oppression, and especially because we're trying to do the Lord's will. Like you find yourself in that situation where you do say the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong meeting or whatever, and now your boss is after you. And you're suffering the consequences for that, and you're feeling like, Lord, what in the world? I'm just trying to do the right thing for you here, and this, what's going on here? It's however hard it is for us to accept 
the the truth of Scripture is that all of these things that happen to us happen to us by God's plan and with mm-hmm. God's permission, even the times that we find ourselves in hardship. So even as these guys are being threatened and they're realizing that they are very likely to be put in jail because of what they're saying, they're acknowledging that that threat that's hanging over them, that this difficulty they find is according to God's plan. That's hard mm-hmm. to do, man. Yeah, it's super hard to do, especially in the moment. And, you know, one of the things that's that's pretty awesome is there's the song that they just sang, Psalm 2, was written by David a thousand years before they sang it. And David was looking around at all these nations that were threatening God's people, and, and he's singing, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? He's singing in faith, like, a thousand years earlier, you're not going to be able to stop the plan of God. And, I mean, if you know what happens between the life of David all the way to the times of Jesus and the apostles, there were countless times where it looked like Israel was right on the verge of being extinguished, Um, whether it was by the Assyrians or the Babylonians or, you know, Haman's scheme or uh, so many different things. And yet, all of their schemes, all of their plotting was entirely in vain, and God did exactly over the course of that thousand years as he wanted. He was sovereign over all of it. The kings of the earth did all this stuff. The rulers gathered together against Jesus, right? And what happened there? God overthrew their schemes and their vain plotting to bring about the salvation of the world. And by the way, the two men who were behind that scheming, Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin that put Jesus to death, they're still in authority, and God is no less in control. Mm -hmm. And so if God could overcome all the nations, and he could overcome Herod, and he could overcome Pilate, and he could overcome the Sanhedrin and the life of Christ, then we're going to trust our lives to that God, even though we're facing the same animosity from the Gentiles and our own leaders that they faced for a thousand years after this psalm. Um, it's, It's really pretty amazing um but just like me you know i feel like song s- speaks to me you know it it'll move my emotions it'll calm me it'll exhilarate me and i love the fact that they're in this point of panic where they're you know i say panic but this is a, a crisis moment sure. like we're we're facing jail persecution yep. probably death and they just sing yeah and they find victory in remembering who God is. Yeah. And one notice what they don't say. God will keep Herod and Pilate from doing bad things to us. They don't say that. They say what they're pointing at is even through the bad things. Like you, Jesus died. Right. But yet even through the worst case scenario, God's plan will not be thwarted. And I trust in his sovereignty even if the worst case comes. Yeah. Now, they do have a request, which, verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed (laughs) through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So what they're basically saying is, Lord, make it worse. (laughs) <laughs> make it worse for us isn't that wild just, like, just pour it on Lord heap it on you know like if you didn't know where verse 29 was going where it says Lord look at their threats and, and you had to fill in like what's coming next you're thinking if I'm praying that prayer let me just tell you what the prayer sounds like Lord 
look upon their threats and destroy them. Yeah. Lord, look upon their threats and change their mind. Lord, but they don't go there. They say, you know, in spite of all those threats, look on those threats and grant to your servants the boldness to continue to speak your word. What? Like that's that's wild. And yeah. what it's this gets at the heart of one of the things that's a beautiful attitude toward prayer is you know, when you go to the Lord in prayer, it, absolutely ask for a change of circumstance. But one of the things that you see in the apostles repeatedly is they're not even asking for a change of circumstance. They're asking for the Lord to change them for their circumstance. Right. Lord, use this moment, this moment of crisis to give me boldness that people will see that you are more precious than anything they're threatening to take away from me. Yeah. Now, verse 30 says that they're asking God to stretch out his hand to heal and signs and wonders to be performed through the name of Jesus. Um, I know that, you know, this is a topic, and and I mean, I guess it's kind of touching on this tangentially, but I think that it's worth at this point mentioning that, you know, when anytime you read something like this in Scripture, you're immediately going to divide the room, if you're talking about a room full of Christians, into two camps. There's going to be some of the Christians there who say, Absolutely, and God still does all this today, and God, you know, and we should be doing the same thing, and we should be focused on the signs and the wonders and the miracles, and and that's what we should be looking for, and that's what we should be expecting. And the other half of the room is like, no, 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 God doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore, and so we should roll up our own sleeves and get busy and not sit around waiting on the Spirit. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is somewhere in between those two. Honestly, this was a unique time in history. I say that to people all the time. This was the church was being established, and these miracles that are being done are being done to authenticate the message of the apostles. Mm -hmm. That man that was healed, that lame man, Sam, he wasn't the only lame person in Israel, Mm -hmm. but he was the one God chose to heal. Well, why him and not somebody who was lame like one town over or had only been lame maybe for a week, had, you know, just had an injury where what? No, Mm -hmm. he did it because it would be a notorious healing. And I don't, I'm using notorious in the good sense. Like if by healing this man, who had been there for years, who everybody knew, God was demonstrating his power in a way that just cannot be denied. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a unique time in history. Now, does that mean that God cannot or will not do the same thing today? No, it does not mean that. He can and mm-hmm. he will do the same thing today. You know, uh, the pastor that we had at our church before uh, Tom, Dr. Dave Dorst, uh, one of the smartest men I've ever known, uh, just really a, a well-read guy, great scholarly mind, uh, really, I, I admired him quite a bit, just his depth and breadth of knowledge and experience, and also one of the most kind of stable, you know, one of these guys that just, he wouldn't come to you and say, Sam, let me tell you what happened. I was driving to work today and Jesus spoke to me through a donut. You know, it's, there's not going to be something that like you'd be shocked if Dr. Doris said something like that. OK, but we were in a meeting one time and we were talking about this very subject. And he asked the question whether any of us were had, you know, were aware of a, of a rack of a miracle that just there was no other explanation for it. And, you know, some people kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit. And he said, I've seen it. And he related the story of some of a place where he was involved, where people were laying hands and praying on somebody, 
praying for somebody, and God restored their sight, miraculously, completely, at that moment. And I always like, even now as I say that, as I relate that story, that, that he was aware of, of that healing, I'm like, I've, I feel like, oh, you know, maybe the optic nerve spontaneously regenerated, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. Um, so there is a sense in which guys like me in particular, I'm pointing my finger at myself now, I'm one of these, you know, very studious, super scholarly, I just like to talk about the theory and and all this in practice stuff gets a little messy, I get a little uncomfortable with these miracles, because if something doesn't happen, I'm going to look like an idiot, you know, that kind of thing. And it all becomes about me in that mm-hmm. respect. Um, but I think that you know, we need to take these two parts of the room and kind of mash us together. There mm-hmm. needs to be some controlling thought that says we shouldn't really be, you know, waiting around for God to do a miracle. But as we go, we should be looking for God to move in power and do things that 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 are miraculous, whether mm-hmm. it's something that can't be denied or whatever it is. So, so how do you feel about that when when you think about this idea of healings and signs and wonders and so forth? Where do you, how do you, I know your background. You kind of came from that background. You, you just want to share the hate mail. Yeah, I do. Because <laughs> right about now, they're getting ready to email Sam at com, or, or Mark at reavisachurch.com. No, 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 no. Just get Sam at reavisachurch.com. <laughs> That's it. Uh, we really don't get hate mail. Like, That's we true. We have a lot of kind listeners, by the way. Um, you know what? When I first came to faith, I went to a, an Assemblies of God, a charismatic church, and I, ne- I never I, – I had personal things, you know, like – where God would do things and the timing behind them were just too overwhelming to be coincidental. Like, and, and I would just absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was God's hand. And I've seen that so much in my life. I've never, I've never had a miraculous experience where somebody regained sight or mm-hmm. or anything like that. And you know, and when you get into some extremes of Presbyterianism. You, you run into a doctrine called cessationism where they don't believe that God moves like this anymore. You know, they, they want to kind of say that all, you know, mir- miracles and stuff like that were meant for the apostolic age, you know, just when the apostles were around. And then you have everyone else who, you know, you get the other extreme that says, you know what, if it says that if I have faith, then I should be able to do this. And so I should be able to do miracles on command. And like you said, I I fall somewhere in between. Like I absolutely believe that God still does miracles. I I don't see how you can read the scriptures and come to a different conclusion than that. Like absolutely God still is in the miracle business. And miracles are meant to be a foretaste of what's coming in heaven where he's going to restore sight and he's going to bring the deaf hearing and the lame will be able to walk and the sick will be healed and all that all that kind of stuff. Pain will be no more. So it's all a foretaste of what's coming for all of us, which, by the way, for all believers, all your prayers will be answered eventually, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. And that's not a cop-out. That's real. Right. That's not a consolation prize. That's the point of all this. That's what they're pointing at when they're so excited about the resurrection. It will fulfill all of it. But in, in Matthew chapter 10, there's a difference between what Jesus says specifically to his apostles when he commissions them in, in Matthew chapter 10 and tells them to go out and he charges them with authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And so what Jesus did with them, he has never done with me, which is to say, hey, Peter and Andrew and James and John and down the line, I am bestowing upon you 
a commissioned power where you now have authority to speak these things into existence. When I read what the church, ha- what the Bible has to say to the church, we're called to, to anoint with oil, we're called to pray, we're called to ask God to move, and God can still move, but he has not commissioned me as an apostle to be able to do miracles on on my authority, having him commissioned me to do so. Mm-hmm. Is that, am I making sense? Yeah, I and agree so, with that, 100%. So, I'm I'm not commissioned to do that, but I will. I absolutely believe that God still does miracles, and I will pray for them to come. Yeah, and I also think that God still does it in places where there's a need to authenticate the message. Uh, most of the time, when I hear stories through different newsletters or, or sources that I'm plugged into, it's from the mission field, quite frankly, or from areas where the church is under intense persecution that you see God's Spirit doing miraculous things in ways that just have no other explanation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I believe that God still uses those signs and wonders to authenticate the message, to say, yes, this is me. I'm Mm -hmm. here. And I think that the further you get away from the need of that, the further you get away from the the immediacy of, I've got to prove to people that what I'm saying is true, um, I think that that God then expects to work through His people, um, I, you know. And I, and again, that's not. I don't believe that that's a cop out, but I understand how it can sound that way. I understand how people can go, "Well, Mark, you just don't have enough faith." Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've got two stories that I'll try to be brief on, just to to not land too hard here. But one of them's lighthearted, and it, I, this made an impression on me. But I remember when Caleb was, gosh, four or five years old. He was young. We were in our house, and there was this nasty thunderstorm. I mean, really bad. And it was lightning and thunder, just boom, 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 boom. I mean, one on top of the the next. Mm -hmm. And I'm in my room working, and I remember thinking, like, I should probably unplug my computer so that it doesn't get fried. Anyway, in the middle of that, Caleb comes in, and he's you know rubbing his eyes because the the thunder had woken him up, and he's holding his blanket and. You know, he looks at me and he says, "Dad, can you make the thunder stop?" And I was like, oh, "How man. amazing is that that you think your dad can make the thunder yeah, stop?" Yeah, exactly. Off? I wish I could. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I told him something like, "You know, sorry, buddy, I, I don't do that." And then he said, "Well, can we ask God to do it?" And I thought to myself, "Oh no, <laughs> like I don't want to disappoint him. He's his. You know, this is going to be one of those moments where he asks me to pray, and he's going to find out that, you know, God's not going to respond to this prayer, of course." And so I made excuses for God. And I said, well, you know, buddy, like the farmers need the rain and the crops and everything, and so God God might not answer this prayer because they need this rain. You know, the water is good for things. And he says, well, can we pray anyway? And so I said, okay. And so I did a simple prayer just kind of bracing for how I was going to tell him to be disappointed, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the moment he said amen, there was not another thunderclasp. And I'm talking from vicious thunderstorm to done. I mean, it was still raining, but the thunder stopped. And I kept waiting for it and waiting for it, thinking, surely it's coming. And wh- and he just was like, okay, thanks, good night, and went right back to bed like it was just totally expected. And I, at that moment, you know, you think of the Jesus talking about, you know, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is like a little child, right. you know. I was going to say, child, faith is a child, yeah. Yeah, you know, that kind of faith, you know, we get jaded to the, the fallenness of this world and how entrenched evil is and pain is, and we just come to expect it. and that 
was borderline. Like I would look at that and say that was just God's miraculous kindness to my son. Now, people would say, miracle, really? It felt like it. In that yeah. moment, it felt like God was doing a kindness to my son. And I've never seen a thunderstorm stop like that on a dime. And then the other one would be with my mom. You know, when she was diagnosed with cancer at first, um, she had lost a ton of weight. She, her cancer was growing. And so they put her on chemo. They put her on uh, radiation. And she was too weak to do either one. And so the doctors basically said, take your mom on a farewell tour. Um, so we took her, drove her up to, to Louisville to say goodbye to her relatives. And when we came back, you know, because she was too weak to continue doing the, the dosage and everything else that she was first supposed to do, we assumed that this treatment would be no good. And when she went back for her follow-up months later, her cancer was dead. And it was like, how in the world did that happen? Like, you know, she wasn't getting the treatment that she was supposed to get, and yet her cancer still died. Now it's back, and she's, you know, she's got weeks Probably, you know, God, unless God does another miracle, which we're, you know, not anticipating, which maybe, maybe we should, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that was, that was jarring because I can remember thinking to myself, you know, it's coming to the end. We're, we're taking her on the good, good farewell tour. Um, and in those days, my mom was scared of dying. She really was. I mean, I would say that she was a believer, but she was scared of dying, which is understandable. And God gave her another couple of years. At least, you know, we'll see what he does. But now she is totally ready to go. And I think, again, that's just the kindness of God Mm -hmm. in that moment, responding to lots of prayers from our community, thankfully. Um, But now, you know, when I go and I visit her, last time I was talking with her, I was like, how are you doing? She said, my bags are packed. I'm ready to go home. Yeah. Um, Like, that's just kindness. Is that a miracle? To me, it sure felt like one. Yeah. Um, it certainly was an answer to prayer. Yeah. And God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over medicine. All of it is in his hand, you yeah. know. You know, I I thought uh, – I always, my mind is always drawn to uh, the passage where Paul is writing about his thorn in the flesh. Um, and, and I think that most of – most people believe that that was a problem with eyesight, that he had bad eyesight and that – he had difficulty because uh, there's <clears throat> there's other references like you see how I've written in large letters with my own hand um, these kinds of things that there was but he says that that God had given him a thorn in the flesh and he described it as a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me so that he wouldn't become too puffed up you know he's, he describes what the purpose of it is and he says three times I asked the Lord he actually said in the King James beseeched like begged God to take it away. And God said no. He said that his strength is made perfect or complete in my weakness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you know, if somebody was going to be able to speak healing to himself, it should have been Paul. Yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> you know, he should have been able to say, thorn in the flesh, I cast thee out, you know, because you know Paul spoke King James <laughs> English, right? Uh, you know, we, like, all know the, we all know the apostles read the King James translation. Verily. Uh, verily, I say unto you. <laughs> you know, it's like, so... That's a joke, by the way, folks. There's people out there that believe. <laughs> you know, the King James Bible came around in the mid-1600s. The apostles were gone by then. Uh, anyway. <laughs> you know, my wife was uh, – just sorry, total total rabbit trail. My wife was telling me she was a missionary in Kiev, Ukraine for three and a half years before coming back and meeting me. Um, but anyway, she said it was funny. There was a, a Southern Baptist missionary who had a deep, like, Alabama – accent mm-hmm. and you could always tell 
the converts that came from this because they would speak English with that accent, like he had trained <laughs> them to speak English. That's and, cool. And all of those converts who spoke with that deep Alabama accent with a Russian twist. <laughs> that's cool. They were King James only people. So oh, it's like, well, that's oh, not cool. I know who led you to the Lord. Yeah, that's I'm not I I don't you know, you know me well enough to know that I love my King James version, but I'm not a King James only person by yeah, any yeah. means. Uh, but I do think it's a I, I love the feel of it. It still feels like scripture to me when it, when you read with that sort of formal mm-hmm. you know I get just, it. that style. It's like it feels like scripture. The the new international version doesn't feel like I'm reading scripture. On the other hand, I also know that it communicates things in much more clear to a, a, a broader variety of people, and I praise God for Bible translations that are easier to read and understand. I, I think I think they should be they should exist. I'm not one mm-hmm. of those only guys, but so we've rabbit trailed quite a bit on the subject of <laughs> signs and wonders and healings. So let's see what happened here. Get back to the conclusion of our story, which is what happened in response to their prayer and what God, what they asked God for. Verse 31 says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So the the result of the threats and the prayer for boldness and the prayer for God to move in power was that God did empower them, and they continued to speak the word, word boldly, and there was a unity among the brothers in Christ there, amongst the church, brothers and sisters. This is one of those brethren moment mm-hmm. um, where they all were willing to make everything they had available. Mm-hmm. And, and what you see in that, why would you do that? You know, that's some of the early skeptics that wrote about Christianity. One of the things they marveled at is that they would write, Christianities, Christians treat their earthly possessions with contempt. And what they meant by that was they give them away. You know, they, they share them. They, right. they help the sick. They just give them away like it means nothing. And if you believe, and it, if you believe that this life is all there is, that's insanity. That's, yeah. That's absolute insanity. I mean, if you're living, I mean, that's, that's when the, the line, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins, that awful statement. The only way that you can believe anything different than that is, is to believe that there's something to come beyond your lifetime. And so the fact that they're sharing everything, that they're, they're envisioning that, you know, these possessions don't define me, that, that skeptic who talked about how Christians treat everything with contempt, he says, these misguided creatures start with the belief that they're immortal for all time. <laughs> 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 misguided creatures that we are. But that's the only way that you can go there is to believe that there's something beyond this life, that there are rewards coming, and therefore all the stuff that we slave away to store up here, you know, like Paul says, after a while you look at it in comparison to what's coming in Christ and it starts to look like sewage. Yeah. You know, it's it's garbage by comparison. Yeah. And so you're eager to help. And, you know, that's one of my favorite things. In the last couple of weeks, man, we've had so many stories in our church where people have met real problems, 
you know, real crisis moments and to see the people in our church respond to whether it's, you know, somebody who is in a car accident and had really grave things happen or, you know, a house fire down the road or, you know, multiple things, like three or four other things where their needs were met, like in a moment. I mean, as soon as they put up a wish list, it's taken care of right right away. And those people are in awe, um, you know, at, at the kindness. Why, why would you people do this? Like, that's that's really wonderful, yeah. um, and it's a mark that our hope is not in our possessions because, you know what, all this stuff belongs to God, and he's got something better for us anyway. Right. And so I'm going to live with the same – or I'm going to try to live <laughs> with the same kind of generosity that God himself has shown right. to me, which is without measure. Which does not mean that God is not in favor of private property or God is a communist yeah. or any of that sort of stuff. I mean, that's the – it's like anything. When we talk about something, immediately people jump to the absurd extreme <laughs> saying, oh, yes. so you're saying God is against people having wealth. No. It's even in the scripture. It's First Timothy 6.17 where Paul, writing to Timothy, is, is basically saying, look, for those that are wealthy in this present age, let them – you know, that's fine. They're given that to be generous with. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he, God's not saying I'm anti wealth. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah, what no. he's saying is I have given you these resources so that you can use them. Mm-hmm. And you see that repeatedly. I mean, when Paul goes in, I mean, there's so many cases where wealthy people help to spur the church along. You really mm-hmm. see that in the book of Acts, especially as Paul is going from city to city. There will be wealthy converts who give them places to preach. And I mean, so you use your wealth for the kingdom and, and the benefit right. of others. It's not yours. You know, and, and so the idea of communism, where it says, and they shared everything and everything was held in common as though that should be government policy, would defeat the, it would stab right through the heart of the gospel because. The gospel doesn't come and say, hey, you know, what's, what's yours? I'm going to take and I'm going to forcibly distribute it. No, coin, like the, the way that the gospel formation is is that your heart is changed to where you voluntarily give. The, the generosity is founded in love, not compulsion. Um, and, and one of the commentaries that I was reading, it was the word there um, in common is koinonia. And it's it's the same for the language, the Greeks, they use this in common. So it's, it's koine Greek, koinonia is the same root. It's in, holding things in common. And this commentary says, communism says what's yours is mine and I'll take it. Where koinonia says, hey, what's mine is yours and I'll voluntarily share it with you. Yeah. Um, and there's a big difference in how that impacts the human heart, how it affects community. One leads toward flourishing and beauty, and the other one leads toward oppression and resentment and all kinds of ugliness. So kindness with generosity and boldness accompanied by you know God working amongst his people, that would be a really cool thing to see, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I love it, you know, the next verse. I don't know why they stopped at 32. It's like, no, 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 add the next one. <laughs> of course, I'd probably keep going if we I could, did that. I, I'll tell you what, man, we could keep going through the whole book of Acts. <laughs> but it says, and with, so when that happens, right, when they're living with this kind of love, you, by my, you know, you will be known by your love, right? And with great power, 
the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And so there you see, when they get together and they sing and they've been threatened, are you going to continue to preach? It says, with great power, they continued giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. One of the lines my my wife says to me all the time, I love that idea of great grace falling upon all of them. When they're in the middle of wondering what's going to happen, when they, you know, they don't know if they're going to be arrested tonight, tomorrow morning, what's going to happen, but God's grace was with them even as they were in that moment. One of the things my wife says to me all the time is she says, you're really good at imagining the worst case scenario. You're really bad at imagining God's grace in the middle of the worst-case scenario. And that's true. Like I can think of the worst-case scenarios with my mom or my kids or church or ministry or whatever. But you know what? Whenever the the worst cases do come along, it's amazing what God's grace in the middle of those things, how it's it's enough. You know, he sustains you through those. And and it's like you can just imagine – these apostles who were not facing, you know, you know, potential threats. I mean, it was it was fairly certain they were going yeah. to be persecuted it if was they continued. Imminent. Yeah. yeah, and yet they continued. And God's grace, I love that. And great grace was upon them yeah. all. Mm-hmm. That's just that's good. Yeah. And if we are faithful and if we're obedient, God's grace will rest upon us too. Well, that's a good word, uh, and I think it's the one that we're going to end on for today. Folks, I hope you've enjoyed your time with us. Uh, this is the last in the series of Awaken. Uh, I hope that uh, these last three weeks have been encouraging to you, that there's a lot that you've taken from them. Uh, if you want to see the messages that were preached on Sunday morning that go along with these podcasts, uh, remember you can get those at our website at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O Vista Church. Dot com, or you can find it on our YouTube channel. We post all of our services and sermon videos up on YouTube, so you can watch them there. And that is youtube.com slash Rio Vista Church. So you can find a lot of great content from us uh, posted up there in our YouTube channel. Uh, so we invite you to enjoy that as well. If you'd like to correspond with us, you can send us an email. The email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. You can also find on our website all the back episodes of this podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash outofwater, where you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Sam and I will be back next week with something new as we get into our next series, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.